Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, October 17, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this talk, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed, in conversation with Philip Bobbitt, discusses the complex life and legacy of our third president, Thomas Jefferson. If there is a Mount Rushmore in our imagination, a pantheon, uh, clouds, summoned from America's ancestral memory. It would include George Washington, and perhaps Franklin, certainly Lincoln. When I was growing up, its most charismatic figure, for me at any rate, was Thomas Jefferson. He was an autodidact who taught himself six foreign languages, an accomplished amateur archaeologist and zoologist. He invented a plow that could navigate hillsides. He tinkered with a way of improving a dumbwaiter And it has been said that if he'd done nothing else, he would have been regarded as the finest American architect of his time. He popularized ice cream, a recipe for which he brought from France. But above all, he voiced the aspirations of a new America as no other person of his era. But as he himself wrote, I like the dreams of the future better than the history of the past. Jefferson's own future is now clouded by what we have learned about his past. And part of that past has been a general disillusionment of Jefferson, an endorsement of John Quincy Adams' description that Jefferson was one tissue of inconsistency, the Enlightenment sage who preached universal equality and the slave-owning voluptuary who fathered an entire family with one of his slaves, finally freeing them, and by the way, only them, at his death. If there's one person I would like to discuss this with, it is Annette Gordon-Reed. Her path-breaking work on the Hemings family has done much to give momentum to that disillusionment. And because, despite the flaws and inconsistencies in Jefferson's legacy, she, more than any of his biographers, treats him and treats us, her readers, as adults. I'll get into this more, but first let me give just a brief sketch of our subject's life. Jefferson was born in 1743 at his father's plantation, Shadwell, in the Piedmont. His father, Peter Jefferson, was a successful planter. His mother, Jane Randolph, a member of one of Virginia's most distinguished families. When Jefferson was 14, his father died, and he inherited a sizable estate. Two years later, he entered the College of William and Mary. He was said to have studied for 15 hours daily on top of violin practice. Two years later, he began to read law with Virginia's most prominent jurist, George Wythe, and appeared in his first case in 1767. He was 24. The next year, he contracted for the clearing of a site on the topmost point of the mountain that rose above Shadwell, where he had played as a boy. He would name this mountain Monticello, and the house that he would build and rebuild over a 40-year period took this name. When he was 29, he married Martha Wales Skelton, but she died in the 10th year of their marriage. They produced six children, but only two lived to adulthood. Along with the land Jefferson inherited, 
There came also slaves from his father, and even more slaves from his father-in-law, John Wales. He also bought and sold enslaved people. In a typical year, he owned about 200, almost half of them under the age of 16. Many of the enslaved house servants were members of the Hemings family, and one was John Wales' daughter. When he was 31, Jefferson was elected to the House of Burgesses, the legislature in Colonial Virginia. At 33, he was a member of the Second Continental Congress. I was chosen to do the initial draft of the Declaration of Independence, bring forward our arguments for declaring ourselves free and independent states. At 36, he was elected governor of Virginia. During the brief interval in this life between the governorship and his next posting, Jefferson completed the one book which he authored, Notes on the State of Virginia. Several aspects of this work are highly controversial. With respect to slavery, in the notes, Jefferson recognized the gross injustice of the institution. And he warned that because of slavery, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. At 41, he entered public service again to go to France and became Benjamin Franklin's successor as U.S. minister. At 47, he became our first Secretary of State under the new Constitution. At 54, Vice President. Four years later, he became President. Perhaps the most notable achievement of his first term was the purchase of Louisiana Territory in 1803, which at least facially appeared to violate the strict construction of the Constitution that he often proclaimed. During the last 17 years of his life, Jefferson generally remained at Monticello, welcoming many visitors. During this period, he sold his collection of books, almost 6,500 volumes, to the government to form the nucleus of the Library of Congress. He embarked on his last great public service at the age of 76 with the founding of the University of Virginia. When he died, just a few years before his friend John, a few hours before his friend John Adams, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, July the 4th, 1826, he was optimistic about the future of the Republican experiment. Ten days before, he had answered an invitation to a celebration of the 4th of July by saying, all eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man. He died more than $2 million in debt. Jefferson will be memorialized by the immortal words in the Declaration that everyone, everyone in this room knows. Behold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to protect these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. But really, it's only five words of that passage that are known the world round. All men are created equal. One writer called them glittering generalities. Another, self-evident lies. But fortunately, we have with us tonight not only a distinguished biographer, but a law professor to guide us through this, our most important constitutional legal document. So let me begin. What do you think is meant by those words? 
We know that the drafting committee removed the condemnation of slavery from the Declaration to Jefferson's fury. But what about those words, all men are created equal? Well, I think he meant that human beings were equal in their right to be well-treated, equal in their moral sense, equal in their worth, not equal in their talents, not even capabilities and so forth. But I think he was making a statement of a, in the Enlightenment philosophy that would be something that over time would come to be realized. So I do think he thought that this was an affirmation or a statement about all of the things that he'd come to believe from re reading Enlightenment philosophy, a, a break from the old to the new. And he also meant that all people who were forming governments saying that the United States should be equal in the community of nations as well. So it's, the Declaration is really establishing a, you know, a break from Great Britain. But those particular words are in, didn't have to be there, obviously. He didn't have to say that, but that was his chance to put Enlightenment philosophy into this document as this new country started out. I have a hard time persuading my, my students that there's something in the Declaration that is uh, unique, that is not prefigured in John Locke mm -hmm. or in the Scottish Enlightenment. And it's the idea that government is under law, that before the American experiment, the state was a total sovereign, a complete sovereign, mm -hmm. but that the words all men are created equal mean that no man, including George III, is another man's sovereign. Mm -hmm. That seems to me plainly inconsistent with slavery. Yes. Would you say that uh, Jefferson was a white supremacist? Was he a racist? I think, yeah, well, yeah. Um, I, think, I think that those were the beliefs and the tenets of his time. And he was born in Virginia into a slaveholding society in which white people were at the top and black people were at the bottom and poor whites were somewhere in the middle in there. Uh, he certainly believed that blacks were different than, than whites, and he certainly thought that over time, I also think he thinks over time, that this kind of the sort of rule over African-American people would have to end. But there's no question that he thought that white people were better than black people. I think that was, that was the currency of the time. And there's a tendency to sort of, I think, pick him out and make him unique in that way, or especially uh, you know, adamant about this. But it's just that he wrote it down, as you well know. One of the things about putting things down <laughs> is that you leave a record. And people think that you really, really mean this. But I, I don't think he's very, I've, I've called him, I've said he was sort of a garden variety white man racist from the 18th century in a way. Uh, this is not something that is, that occupies his time and he's you know, planning for. It's just that this, these were the racial attitudes of the moment and they're things that we condemn today. This is sort of background assumptions. Background assumptions that you had. It's an interesting thing that the war, you have to think about what happened to him during the time period that he's writing the Declaration of Independence. And he says this later in a letter that before this time, he and his cohort, Virginians, thought of African people as property, as like, you know, other property that they owned, horses, cattle, and so forth. But something happens in the Revolution. He sees black men joining the British forces, some of them joining the American forces to fight. 
And then this gives a different understanding of who these people are. And on one hand, it must have been, and it was evidently something that made him see them as potential, um, well, potential soldiers, African-American men or potential soldiers. And then he begins to fear them in a way that he had not before. So all of these things are written in the context of war and his thinking, notes on the state of Virginia when he's talking about this, you know, a few years after drafting the declaration, these ideas are still in his mind, that you have these people who are a captive nation, and he saw African-Americans as a nation within a nation who are in a state, like Locke, they're in a state of war with the whites in Virginia, and he fears them. So a lot of his racial ideology, his understanding about African-Americans comes out of that as well, grows out of all of it. What about the problem of anachronism for the historian or particularly for the biographer. Mm -hmm. That is when we take attitudes based on 21st century values and we superimpose them on figures from different eras, mm -hmm. different centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand, it, what other values could we apply? Yeah. These are our, yeah. our values. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we know many things that they didn't know for example, about the capabilities of different races. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, what is the biographer, how, does, how do you square it's that a circle? One. It's a very, very tough thing to do because you're right. How do you step, it's like imagining yeah. a color you've never seen before, right. right? It's always going to be in reference to something that you already know. And so, but on the other hand, history is a, it's a moral enterprise. You can't just say, oh, and this is how they slaughtered the innocents and that's not a big deal and let's go on. This is just what they did. We have to make, we will make judgments about it, but you have to temper it somehow. And that's the, the art of biography, uh, the art of writing, and it's not a, there's no scientific formula for that, but you have to remind yourself, now what are the things that are so far outrageous, <laughs> things that are, that people at the time yes. understood? Because there were people at the time who, under, who knew better than this, but then you say, how many? You know, I mean, very often people will point to individual people from the 18th century who had better attitudes about race, but these are like five or six people. Mm -hmm. You're not talking about a society. And that's, that's a really tricky business. You have to, it's humility at some level. You have to keep that in mind that, yes, we are naturally going to make judgments about people, but how far you go in doing that is, is it's really... You know, it's, it's a question of the, the biographer and the writer and the art of coming up with a fair, you know, a fair presentation of someone and not, I mean, this is about, for me, biography is about discovering the individual. It's not about me saying, here's how I think about all of this stuff, vehicle for me to tell the reader about my values. Um, it's really about what did this person think he was doing and how did he or she go about doing that and you will make judgments, but you try to be fair to them because I, I just don't think it's, there's no purpose in it just being a diatribe, you know, or yeah. rant against someone, you know, you know, shooting, it's like shooting fish, fish in a barrel. barrel. Somebody yeah. who's born in 1743, somebody who never saw a train um, to say, I'm better than he and I have better understanding. But as you pointed out, we've learned a lot. A lot of our wisdom, our understanding has been it's hard fought and it's come from all of the things that have happened since 1826, the Civil War, the Holocaust, all of those things that taught people lessons that 
he wouldn't have had a chance to learn. I'll, I'll come back to this point in a few minutes uh, because I want to stress that one thing I take away from, from your work is this imaginative empathy. Mm-hmm. It really is, is quite, uh, uh, quite striking. But I want to first uh, make a couple more points about Jefferson's life. He said, the art of life is the art of avoiding pain. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can see that he, he, this is a practiced <laughs> art in Jefferson's uh, so. uh, life. You and uh, Peter Onuf have written very convincingly about Jefferson's life as a kind of project of self-creation, beginning with Monticello and this small world over which he presides. Is it your thesis that he was forced to choose between this beautiful encapsulated world on the one hand and freeing his slaves and living up to his credo at home on the other? Or or did he persuade himself that there was really no contradiction, that he could live a beautiful life and be generous and kind to the enslaved people at Monticello within the framework of this little, this small universe? Mm -hmm. Well, I think he came up against reality before he goes to France and as a young man, he had written, you know, thing. He, he considered himself to be anti-slavery, primarily through being anti-slave trade and thinking that slavery was a backward institution and eventually it would die out. That's what the revolutionary generation thought. Of course, this is before cotton, and this is before the explosion right. Right. of the slave prices go up, all those kinds of things. They saw it as sort of a dying institution in much the same way we look at progress and say, oh, we won't be doing that in the future. We would have figured something else out. So that's something that can be handled by the other generations. When he goes to France, and we talk about this in the book, and he sees how long it took the French to get to the point of revolution, looking at the status of the, status of the peasants and people starving and so forth, and he said, you know, this is, we, it's bad in the United States. Slavery is bad in the United States, but this is something that rise, the rising generation can help to take care of. We have time to do this. I think what he convinced himself of was that he was going to ameliorate slavery at Monticello, that he was going to do, become a good slave owner. And once he does that, then all bets are, I mean, there's no the activist, the person who's arguing for the end of slavery, kind of disappears, and he f- he's focusing on what he's doing instead of actively working in the society to make a change. And I, I don't think he saw that as a contradiction. I mean, yeah. the, the signal thing in Jefferson's life was his participation in the American Revolution. He said he thought that he and his generation had done something momentous in the world. They've gotten rid of a, of a monarchy, They've gotten rid of a king, and they started a republic. And his attitude was, well, we did that. The next generation, what is the next generation going to do? It's not up to us to, you know, he tried to, you know, at some point he had proposals to have gradual emancipation statutes in Virginia, and they were completely rejected. And he knew that his Virginia cohort was never going to vote slavery out. They weren't going to do that. So he concentrated on the thing that he thought was the most important contribution he'd made, and that is the creation of the United States and then participating and setting the government up and protecting it against those monocrats, Hamilton, right. and all those people. And that's what he thought his charge was. We want him 
to do the things that right. we Our think were important. And we, because we know what's happened, we know what's going to happen. The thing they set up was going to fall apart in the in the beginning of the 1860s, and we'd have to start all over again. And if they could have spared us that, that would have been good. But that's that's us. That's thinking about what he's thinking of and what's important to him. It's his role as a revolutionary. And he thought that that might be enough for a life. Uh, you know, and then after being yeah. president and then starting university and ending slavery was not his, that was not his goal. That was never any, not, not what interested him. I'd like to just dwell for a moment on a difficult historiographical problem. Many people had looked at Madison Hemings before you did. Mm -hmm. And I want you to explain who, who he was. Mm -hmm. uh, but... In your work, you not only look at Madison Hemings, you look at how he was looked at. Mm -hmm. That is, how his evidence was treated. Mm -hmm. uh, and I find that fascinating because it's in a, sort of in a par with this imaginative sympathy I mm -hmm. mentioned a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Could you just say something about this figure? Well, Madison Hemings was, his actual name was James Madison Hemings, um, was the second son of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. He was born in 1805 and grew up on, you know, at Monticello and became apprentice to his uncle John Hemings as a carpenter and spent a good amount of his time, his teen years, working on Poplar Forest, which was Jefferson's home away from home, where he went to get rid of, get away from everybody who was coming to visit him in retirement. Uh, and Madison Hemings gave a recollection in 1873 to the Pike County, Ohio Republican, where he had moved after his mother died, after Sally Hemings died in 1835. He and his brothers left Virginia and they moved out to this community in Southern Ohio, which is a community of mixed race people where many Southern planters who had children with enslaved women would bring them to Southern Ohio and free them and leave them there because, and free them there. So this is a community largely of mixed race people and they moved out there. Madison Hemings gave a recollection to um, a man who who had been a census taker and had probably heard about Madison Hemings living in this particular area, and he says he he was the son of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. That memoir was lost, that recollection was lost for many years. Nobody wrote about it until a man named John Despasos, um, a novelist, who was who also wrote about a book about Jefferson, found it, and he showed it to Duma Malone and other Jefferson scholars. The first person to write about it was Merrill Peterson, who did this, the Jefferson image in the American mind, a, a classic work about Jefferson, mentions Madison Hemings and kind of dismisses him. And he says, and I, he, he had a phrase that I used as one of my, the title of one of my essays. And he says, oh, those, those are just the memories of a few Negroes. And uh, sort of very, very dismissive, but he didn't even mention Madison Hemings' name. Um, Madison Hemings is discussed in later on by Duma Malone, who wrote a six-volume biography of Jefferson. And in the back of it, he, he addresses this question of the, um, uh, of the Madison Hemings recollections and dismisses it. A woman named Fawn Brody in 1974 wrote uh, a biography of Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson and Intimate History, and she put Madison Hemings' recollections in the back of her book. And when I was 14, I read Fawn Brody's book, and I read Madison Hemings' recollections. That was the first time I'd ever read 
a narrative of an enslaved person. And it just fascinated me to think of what it would be like to be your father, to be your father, and to own you like a father's own fathers, but also legally own you as, a, as an item of chattel. And Jefferson historians pretty much dismissed what he said instead of, I mean, there was a lot of material in the document that could be checked. Mm -hmm. And usually the way you judge credibility is by looking for things outside of what the person is saying to see if they can, if those things can be corroborated. But none of that was done. It was pretty much, he said Jefferson was my, his father, so the whole thing was just kind of dismissed, except some of the things he says appear in Jefferson biographies without attribution, other parts of it, but not the Jefferson was my father part. So my first book was really about um, looking at Madison Hemings, his statement, and comparing it to other people's statements, suggesting that other people fathered Sally Hemings' children, and go through and find out what kind of corroboration that I could find for that. So it was an interesting look at historiography, because to, to me the bigger point was not, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, and the idea that a slave owner had children with enslaved women is just is banal. It, it, that happened all the time. The question is, how did historians use statements from enslaved people? Because it seems odd to me, or odd is not, it's not a strong enough word, uh, wrong to take the victims of slavery and make them put the burden of beyond a reasonable doubt proof on them when it makes no sense. I mean, we have burden of proof in criminal law is based, is derived out of the fact that we have a huge power, the power of the government arrayed against an individual. And what they were doing essentially was putting Madison Hemings in the position of the government a powerful individual whose statements were being used against helpless Jefferson and his family. And that was a complete moral flip to me, that that was wrong. This is not the way you should look at it. Um, and so Madison Hemings becomes sort of a key or sort of a, the information that he gives about life at Monticello is a key to his mother's life it, t it says a lot about Jefferson. Now that we can see it as something that is, you know, that is credible, it unlocks a lot of stories, a lot of information about Jefferson that has to be considered and, and to be thought of. The Hennings debate, um, which I think is probably tailing off now, mm -hmm. thanks in large part to your work, brings out uh, the best and the worst in people. Boy, <laughs> uh, do I know that. Surely the worst. <laughs> The worst must have been Gary Wills, uh, who wrote about Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, that many men use prostitutes and use women. <clears throat> There's no evidence he cherished her. But there are some better things. And, and the best uh, is the sympathetic uh, rendering that you and uh, Peter Unuff give about Jefferson giving the names of his closest friends to these uh, illegitimate uh, children, seeing that they would pass, as they ultimately did for white, mm -hmm. uh, is his way of getting them out of their system of, of oppression. Christopher Hitchens has a nice remark about this. He says, of course, there's the odd fact 
that Jefferson had a very long love affair with a woman who he owned, who he inherited from his father-in-law, who was his wife's half-sister, and produced several children by him, whose descendants have mainly been brought up on the white side of the color line. So, in a strange way, his own patrimony disproves his own belief that there couldn't be a coexistence between black and white Americans. Mm-hmm. Jefferson wrote, The happiest moments of my life have been the few which I have passed at the home in the bosom of my family. Could you just say something about Jefferson as a kind of patriarch? Mm-hmm. Well, he was part of patriarchal Virginia, right. and he'd grown up that way, and he sort of cherished the idea that he was... I mean, patriarchy now has a bad name, right? Um, Patriarchs are disfavored. Um, But it wasn't... Patriarchy for him was not just about the exercise of power. It was about the exercise of responsibility as well. So as maddening as it is to us, (laughs) he had a notion of being responsible for people and responsible for family. Family... And the really in, in, in their you know sort of maddening statement, the inside family and the outside family, uh, meaning enslaved people, the outside family, that he's in charge of all of this, and so he can think of himself as benevolently. Now these people underneath this would like to say, hey, you know, maybe we have an idea about how we would like to live. Uh, we don't want to stay here, but that was his idea that he was exercising power and so long as he exercised power benevolently it would be okay now he understood that as i said before slavery was a state of war between the enslaved and the person who was the enslaver but he could not and he did not have i think any real realistic plan for what to do about getting out of that state of war his solution would be emancipation, and because he didn't think that blacks and whites could live together, as Christopher Hitchens's statement suggests there, he thought that there had to be a separation, that there could be expatriation of African-American people, white nations and black nations would meet each other as equals in, in, as states, right. not as a group of a mixed people, because even though he has this family, he cannot say, and it's hard to say that now, actually, that the nation is a basically a mating pool. You know, you become a nation by, you know, how can you be equal citizens if you say, you know, you're my equal citizen, but I can't marry you. You can't marry my daughter. You can't, we can't become one family. And so because he saw the United States as a new nation and thought of nations in terms of people, it would be difficult for him to say certainly to say out loud, that that should be the solution. I mean, you know, you think of today, there was a Cheerios commercial a couple of years ago where they had a mixed-race couple, and they had a little kid who was obviously mixed-race, and they got lots of negative response to that. We're talking in the 21st century. So think about the 18th century or the 19th century, what would have happened to someone who said, this is the solution. You could say it about Native Americans, but you could not say that, and which he did uh, say about Native Americans, that they would be assimilated or, you know, they would die out. But he held that out as a possible future, that they would become one, one group. But you can't say, he could not say that about African people. And, and as I said, it's hard to say that even now. 
I want to read something that uh, John Adams said in a letter to Jefferson. He wrote, your character in history may easily be foreseen. Your administration, you know this quote, your administration will be quoted by philosophers as a model of profound wisdom, by politicians as weak, superficial, and short-sighted. Jefferson instructed that his tombstone make no mention of his presidency. Do you think he regarded that period in office, those eight years, as a failure and that he was being coy when he said he hated politics where he spent most of his professional yeah. life. Well, I, th- I think he was definitely being coy. He was, Jefferson was the master politician of his age. I mean, from basically the 1790s up through, I mean, everybody. He had acolytes. The people, Madison comes after him. Uh, Monroe, there's a split with JQA. And then Jackson, whom he didn't care for very much, um, considered himself a Jeffersonian. You never had that kind of political influence from one person in that concentrated form again. So he loved politics and he was great at it. So all of this business about, oh, you know, I'd rather be home in the bosom of my family. He could have been, he could have been there if he wanted to, but he wanted, he loved that kind of stuff. And he was always involved in politics. Um, I think, well, what do you think of when you say, when you look at the tombstone and you see those things that he says are his... his right. um, um, the Virginia Bill of Religious the, Freedom. Uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence. Independence. The University, University of Virginia. Virginia. What's the first thing you think of? Wasn't he president? <laughs> Didn't he write the Declaration? I mean, he does mention that. But, you know, all you, you call to mind all those other things. He knows people are going to remember that he was president of the United States. But I do think he thought that those... Those were the things that, I mean, the presidency existed without him, right? I mean, he considered himself the author of the Declaration, even though the people tinkered with it. The bill he considered his, you know, UVA he considered his. It's their 200th anniversary, by the way, this year. And um, these were things that he thought were his contributions to enlightenment, to enlightenment philosophy. Um, And that was part of his self-image from the time he was a young man, that he was one of these, in the vanguard of that, he was the person who was doing things that was advancing that you know, enlightenment philosophy. And those three things are in line with that. So I think that's why he, he thought it was important, even though he knew people were going to call up the list of all the other things that he had done. Well, this might be a good moment to turn to some questions from the, uh, from the audience if we have the cards. Uh, but I just want to read something that Lincoln wrote about uh, Jefferson. Lincoln had very ambivalent feelings about, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about Jefferson, but he captured something that, that uh, you've just said. Lincoln wrote, all honor to Jefferson, to the man who, in the concrete pressure of a struggle for national independence by a single people, had the coolness, forecast, and capacity to introduce into a merely revolutionary document an abstract truth and so to embalm it there that today and in all coming days it shall be a rebuke and a stumbling block to the very harbingers of reappearing tyranny and oppression. Mm-hmm. That we've had, you know, uh, more than three dozen presidents. Mm-hmm. We only have one author of the Declaration of Independence. The first question is, on a scale of 1 to 10, (laughs) how effective was Jefferson as a commander-in-chief, 
as a businessman, and as a diplomat. On a scale, uh, I'll start with the diplomat. As a diplomat, I would say he was an eight yeah. or nine. He was a good, and he learned a lot. He learned a lot in France about, well, international finance, <laughs> government finance, those kinds of things. So he was a He was an eight. On um, the second was presidency. Second was a, a businessman. Businessman on oh, businessman. <laughs> he was not a good businessman. Uh, well. You know, he did well for William Short, his secretary. He invested, you know, there were some things that he did pretty well. It's just that he was not interested in agriculture. He was not interested in daily managing his farm. He had other people managing that. And we mentioned in our book that once he turned over uh, the management of the farm to his grandson, production tripled. You know, tripled? Yeah, it tripled. And it, so he, I mean, Monticello was sort of a backdrop for him to, you know, participate in the Republic of Letters. I don't think he was a great businessman, so I would make him at four or five. Uh, the first one? Commander-in-Chief. Commander-in-Chief. Uh, well, the embargo, uh, that's the presidency. Mark, I, w- I would say I would give him a six with that as well. You could say that the War of 1812 can be laid at his door. Yeah, it's true. Some, that's true. So that, I mean, maybe do. Okay, maybe five. Five. Demerits for that. <laughs> I'll, I'll push it back. I'll push it back. Second question is, how did Jefferson react or respond to the Haitian Revolution? Well, not very well. I mean, he started out, the first letter that I've I've found that he talks about this, he's writing to his daughter, and he basically says, you know, know, the Negroes have taken over the island, and this is the thing that's going to happen in due course all over the Caribbean. It's sort of like, it was sort of an age of revolution thing. He's very sanguine about it. You know, age of revolution, this is what we can expect is going to happen. And then when he finds out that they're killing a lot of white people, then that's when he he takes a harder turn uh, about it and is not, you would think that he would say, oh, the age of revolution stuff would continue. And he'd say, oh, this, we started it off, the French kicked it off, I mean, we kicked it off, the French came, and now the Haitians, and blah, blah, blah. He becomes much more hostile towards it. And the specter of, as a lot of refugees are coming into Virginia, sometimes with their enslaved people, the specter of something like that happening, happening in Virginia is frightening to him, and others as well. And you know, that's when this notion of war comes back again. And he takes a hard line against them. He doesn't want to recognize the country. He does, he's not helping them. And that's, that's against his philosophy. Now, the philosophy of, of the age of revolution, because it's fear that this is, you know, we're all for this to happen, but not if, if it means that black people are going to be killing white people, are going to be killing us. And that's always the thought there. Um, later on in life, um, a visitor comes to Monticello and they're talking to him about Haiti. And, and he says something really curious. He says, well, you know, I would have recognized Haiti, but the white people, the prejudice of, uh, of the white people against black people is too strong. So it's like, you know, he doesn't think of himself mm, as a prejudiced, as prejudiced person. person. Oh. Of course, I'm not a racist. It's those other people out there. And so it's it's very interesting thing. And this is someone who believed in majority rules, the wisdom of the majority all the time. You know, he's saying, well, the majority of people didn't want this, and I would have done it, but the majority wouldn't want to do it because I'm not suggesting that he is not as prejudiced as they are, which is odd. This is an interesting question. Um, 
and I want to say something about it before we break up tonight. Uh, what are your thoughts on the increased emphasis on the lives of enslaved people at historic sites such as Mount Vernon and Monticello? Well, it's, I, that's what I always wanted. So uh, <laughs> that was part of what my work is about. Um, I think it's something that's necessary because it is interesting when people come to a plantation and don't want to hear about what actually happened there. Sure. Monticello has done a really good job with this, and they have a, a house tour that you can take, and I think that they are they are required to mention slavery on the house tour, and there's a separate tour you can take of the plantation. You can't. It's hard to put them together because of the time that it would take and the walking that has to be done. But um, many, many people now, that's becoming the more popular tour to come in and find out about the people who lived in Monticello, not just the Hemingses, but others. So I think it's it most, it, it's a site to learn about history and it would be a shame if it, I, I think it was, doesn't make sense to just come and talk about the, you know, the, the, the furniture house. and the, the furniture and the gadgets and I mean you do all of that as well, but it's a it's a place for learning. That's what he wanted it to be. The parlor at Monticello is full of maps mm -hmm. and uh, you know bones from archaeo you know from right. from paleontological digs and things like that. And the idea was to have people come into the parlor and while they were waiting to see him, look at the map of Africa, look at all the map of Europe, all those things, and learn things. The the uh, sculpture he's brought back from from Europe. And I think he'd be surprised that we, we, we know the names of his slaves and know their families and all of this stuff. But I think he would be intrigued by the idea that Monticello was a site of learning. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think plantation should be. Would you comment, you're asked, on Jefferson's beliefs regarding the separation of church and state? Mm -hmm. Well, that is one of the things that I think is probably an important legacy that hasn't been, you know, well, has been emphasized uh, a lot, but has sort of come under fire in some places. Our home state of Texas had to look askance at some of Jefferson's ideas about uh, religion and wanted to actually take him out of, not take him out of the history books, but kind of diminish him in favor of John Calvin. I think that's who they were going to replace him with. Um, it's a signal. There's an article in the, in the Atlantic Monthly, Atlantic this month, I think, that talks about the number of people today who identify as atheists has sort of jumped up from the 1990s. And one of the things the person speculates about is the fact that religion, certain religious groups have been associated with one party. In other words, making the more you put government in line with religion or seeing as endorsing a religion, it makes people cynical. I mean, certainly that has happened in Europe. Places that have established churches, the established church, whether it's Anglican or Catholic, I mean, the church going, the belief goes down. So, I mean, Jefferson, I mean, his idea of separating church and state allowed people to have their own conscious, to follow their own consciousness. And in that, Americans became really religious people, much more religious than they are in Western Europe. So it's an important principle to keep in mind. And I think it's, you, know, you talk about him being battered in a lot of ways, that this is one of his ideas that can kind of stand and really be considered something that's positive in my view. Does anybody ever read the Jefferson Bible? 
I don't know if they read it, but they, when I talk about it, people are just intrigued. It might just say... Well, Jefferson did not believe in the divinity of Jesus. He thought Jesus was the greatest moral teacher ever, but that he was not divine. And he did not believe in the miracles. He thought that those were superstitions that divided people, as you argued about them. So when he was in president, he started, he had this idea of creating his own Bible. And he took this, he didn't tell anybody what he was doing, but when he was in retirement, he came back to it. And he basically took a razor and stripped out all of the miracles and the superstitions in the Bible and created just the teachings. The, he calls it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Really? Okay, Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus Christ, but Jesus of Nazareth. And it's a Bible that he thought could be a Bible fit for a Republican society that people could not, you wouldn't argue about stuff, you know, be kind to your neighbor. All the Jesus' teachings that, um, that emphasize love, that emphasize community and those kinds of things instead of ideas that could be divisive. So, uh, yeah, that's a, it's sort of hard to think of cutting up the Bible, you know, and create, I'm going to create my own Bible. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was given out to members of the House of Representatives in years past and you can't imagine something like that happening now, right? It would never, it would never happen. It just shows you how far we've come or how far we've gone falling back. I don't know. One question is, is there a clear intellectual or political heir to Jefferson? I think, I think the question means today. Today. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, who, who asked me? I asked, who asked the question? Were you thinking of James Madison and... Or were you thinking of someone today? Let's try, air, let's try intellectual, today. today. Intellectual air. Well, I don't. You mean in politics? Or I don't think. <laughs> intellectual or, or uh, politician? Not that I can think of. Right. I mean, can you think of anybody? Um, See, the problem is the talent pool. I'm not, I'm not to put the founders. <laughs> no, no, seriously. I mean, no, the talent. No, I'm going to go wrong. I'm going to say, hear me out. Um, <laughs> I'm not putting the founders down, but this is this. Think about this. This is an era when half the population is left out of the pic, out of the picture. That is to say, women. Right. So enslaved people out of the picture, poor white people pretty much out of the picture. Today we have so many opportunities, and think of all the professions we have: tech, biology. I mean, science. I mean, there's so many ways for people. There's so many arenas for geniuses to operate today that didn't, op didn't have at the time. I'm not saying that Jefferson and all those, those people were not, you know, talented folks, but it's hard to think of one person who had, who could be doing so many different things, an architect, president, starting a university, writing the Declaration of Independence, all that kind of stuff. So I don't, I don't think that there's anybody on the public stage that is quite like that. We're much more specialized. Mm -hmm. I mean, the 18th century was the era of the of the of people who are generalist, generalist, all those kinds of things. And now we're very narrow. That that works in some ways, but in some ways things are lost. It means you don't have a sort of polymath in the same way. Yeah. Franklin, um, Franklin or Jefferson. Yeah. One question is, is it fair to say that Jefferson was the primary force 
behind the rise of American political parties? Yeah, kind of. Um, as you know, the founders were not, I mean, Washington and people worried about, Madison worried about faction and what they would call parties. Jefferson, of course, starts a newspaper. When he, when he finds out, he starts off okay with Hamilton, and then he finds out that Hamilton, probably from James Madison, that Hamilton <coughs> proposed while they were in the Constitutional Convention having a president who served for life. Life, and a Senate that served for life, sort of modeled on the, the House of Lords in a way. Not hereditary. You, the president would have, to, would have to be elected, but still an elected president, a you know, person who lived, who was president for as long as they lived. Jefferson thought, well, you know, we just got rid of somebody who, you know, who was king forever. I mean, the hereditary part of it is, that was bad enough, but the longevity of it bothered him. And so he saw Hamilton as a threat and of course, when he has his report on manufacturers, that seals the deal for Jefferson on it, thinking that this is this is not what we want. And so he starts a newspaper. He he and Madison enlist somebody to start a newspaper, and from there, you get you see people lining up on one side. So Hamilton has his newspaper, Jefferson has his, and you see people lining up on either side with Democratic-Republican clubs in the 1790s, which Washington hates, he thinks are unconstitutional, which is, we think about original view. His original view is that you know, people getting together to express their political viewpoints are, is unconstitutional. Um, so yeah, Jefferson is very much, in behind the scenes, he's sort of having Madison go out and do these things, but he's definitely a part of the creation of, of, of parties in the 1790s. One of the, um, what I think it was myths around the early revolutionary period, <clears throat> associated with Richard Hofstadter at, mm -hmm. at Columbia, is that the Constitution did not contemplate the existence of political parties. I'm not persuaded of that. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, the founding generation was quite familiar with and knew about Whigs and Tories, thought they were Whigs, mm -hmm. thought the Loyalists were Tories, and that like uh, South Africa, like India, like other states where one revolutionary party uh, succeeds, you have one party, the Federalist, and that then splits. Mm -hmm. But that they were quite sophisticated about the existence of, of parties. Yeah. Uh, so I, it's hard to think that they, how they wouldn't have been given course. their history. They understood. Jefferson is always calling people Tories. Right. Blackstone is a Tory. Other people, it's, I mean, yeah. And he calls himself a Whig. Yeah, he's a Whig, yeah. What views did Jefferson hold towards the rights and equality of women? Well, um, he thought that there was, this patriarchy business, a natural order. And women were equal, but women were equal in their station. Right. He didn't think that women should be in public life, uh, that women were attached to the home. Now, he has a couple of letters to his daughter, a couple of letters in which he says, you know, he hasn't thought very much about education for females or anything like that, and people use that to suggest that he didn't. You know, he was sort of diminishing women, but his daughters and his granddaughters were educated. He educated them like guys were educated. They took Latin and they did math. I mean, he, he set out a course of study for them, so it's, you know, it's a very 
mixed bag in that way. He doesn't, you know, for his grandchildren and his daughters, he sees that they should be educated with the, with the um, thought that they would be able to help in the education of their children. But he definitely thinks that there's a sphere for women and there's a sphere for men and women shouldn't be in public life. Uh, Albert Gallatin, the Secretary of Treasury, suggested one time that they were having difficulty finding people to be in the government. And he, and he said, how about women? And Jefferson said that that is an innovation to which neither I nor the public are read or prepared. <laughs> and, and he thought, he said, the reason he didn't think that they should be in public office, aside from the fact that politics were too rough and tumble for them, is that there would be ambiguity of issue. In other words, if women worked, you would never know who their children belonged to, that their husbands could not be sure that the children belonged to them because there would be affairs mm. and they would have get pregnant. And so that was, women should be kept out of the, work the workforce because that ambiguity of issue is the way he put it. Well, I don't want to end on, I don't want to end on that note. <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to call attention to uh, one aspect of uh, uh, Professor uh, Gordon Reed's work. I'm sorry that my, my small children just, had, just got up and left a few minutes ago because I wanted them to hear this, this, uh, <laughs> this speech. My wife and I worry, as many of you probably do, that our children will grow up uh, spoiled and entitled the way we did. <laughs> and, uh, and it's made me reflect upon the whole idea of what it means to be entitled. And I've decided that it's not such a bad thing. <laughs> and that, uh, and this is something I, I really draw from, uh, strength from in your, your work, as well as some others. That what we want for our, for our people and for the descendants of the enslaved is a sense of entitlement, a sense that they belong, mm -hmm. that even if they were brought here by force, that the country we have now is one they created. They cleared the swamps, they felled the wilderness, they planted the fertile fields, uh, that they are, have a right to be here, and that this is their country and something that they're in, entitled to feel uh, proud of. Now, of course, there are uh, things that every generation finds uh, uh, a shame in. And the lesson of that may be to ask ourselves, what is it that we're doing that our descendants will look back on us with shame? But the importance of this uh, work to which I've referred, and I hope you'll uh, pick up on the way out, for me is that it restores the, uh, the entitlement of someone like a Madison Hemings. It, it brings them back to what they really earned and what they really were, instead of marginalizing them as people whose testimony is uh, not to be relied upon. So we've had a great night tonight. We spent it with uh, Thomas Jefferson, always good company and this wonderful guest of ours from Harvard. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.